Hi, buddy. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. If you were to hack into my phone, and I urge you not to do that, you would find a lot of pictures of my kids pulling stupid faces in selfies when I've left my phone in the kitchen for an unguarded moment. You would also find a heavily used version of the Twitter app, and you'd find collections of historical facts that I've been harvesting over my career and sticking in my notes app. There are some really niche things in there, like lists of 18th dynasty New Kingdom pharaohs. There are a lot of quotes that have meant something to me that I've come across over the years. And just the other day, I was reminded on the 13th November, on the anniversary of Benjamin Franklin's line, nothing is certain except death and taxes. There are a lot of debunked myths in there, Vikings having no horns on their helmets, Napoleon not being short, etc. And all of those strange things have now been scraped off my phone and stuck in our new history hit book, Miscellany. It's available online and in all good bookshops. But the facts and the bits of trivia that people seem to have really warmed to are the ones in which we refer to mysteries, buried treasure, strange occurrences in the past that couldn't really be explained at the time. And that inspired me to get my good friend Dan Schreiber on the podcast. He's podcasting royalty. He's a legend. Host of the We Can Be Weirdos podcast. He's published the book, The Theory of Everything Else. And he has got an encyclopedic knowledge of the weird and the wonderful. He's a polymath. I want to get him on the show to have a little seasonal fun and talk about some of the weirder things that we've stumbled across in our studies. Here he is. Enjoy. Dan the man, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You had me on your wonderful uh, podcast, which is all about sort of mysteries and coincidence and strange superstition. And it made me think, because you just were such a font of knowledge about weird history. Mm. I want to get you back on and talk through some of the weird episodes that I've stumbled across. Yeah, okay. I know you'll be able to throw a lot back at me. Well, it's the, it's the greatest thing about history, isn't it? Is that every person, every place, it's just packed with madness, with weirdness. Walking up here today, we're recording in Soho. There's a road literally down the road from us where William Hazlitt, the essayist, he died, right? It's the place he died. And there's a weird thing I know about it, which is that when he died, the landlady who owned the apartment was so keen to re-let it immediately that she took his dead body shoved it under the bed and started showing potential new tenants the wow. room. So while they're looking around, Hazlitt was dead under the bed. It's just... That's it's, crazy. And, you know, you the property market is hot now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's wild, isn't it? Yeah. I think that also really drives something to me, which is that we think of the modern world as being sexy and anarchic and weird and chaotic and sometimes tragic and violent as well, sadly. And yet... The more you study the past, the more you realize that actually maybe these earlier periods were even wilder than ours are now because we live long time. We're quite staid. Like it, mm. things were quite settled. Things were real back then. I mean, there was, you know, <laughs> if you were renting a room, they need the next person come in there and rent it straight the minute you died, right? Because you mean life expectancy was shorter? Partly, yeah, life expectancy was shorter. Yeah. I think people were, there was a greater concentration of people in the middle of town. I don't know, everything's more spread out. I think we're a bit more docile today. We're watching Netflix half the day, right? Yeah. We're yeah. listening to podcasts. They weren't doing that. No. They were working a bit and then causing, you know, riot in the streets after yeah. Yeah, that's true. I heard someone say the other day that we're living in a time 
where our mind, our brain space is now the commodity to all the companies of the world yeah. because we've turned ourselves into consumers of things. So if they can buy your brain space, your time within there, that's the big retail areas. You used to buy land. It was Bo Burnham, the comedian. He was like, we'd buy land and that's where you'd make your money. Now we're buying brain land. That's the, it's a weird, it's a weird time it's we're weird. in. And unfortunately you and I are in that business. Dan. Yep. <laughs> Keep I, listening. I think the weirdest one I want to share with you... <laughs> I have personally been involved in, and I've been, done some weird things, was when we thought there was a, a train full of Nazi gold in Poland in a tunnel. Do you remember this? And it was hit the headlines. It was a big story, like about okay. 2014. And when you say we, it's not your theory. No, tragically. So basically, I was going about my business one day, and my phone exploded in my hand because the Polish government announced that they had found, or their remote sensing archaeologists had found a train supposedly laden with looted Nazi gold in a blocked-up tunnel on the Polish railway network. And I went completely bizarre because I, I was like, this is the biggest history story of my lifetime. And the Polish government, and I mean, obviously you expect some like Metal Tech to announce it, try and generate some interest. But like, this was the Minister of the Interior had a press conference about this and showed images on a wall and stuff. And I immediately got in touch with the BBC and said, Mike, I hope you're bidding for this. And it was super exciting. And it was the early days of Netflix and Amazon. It was like, what's going to happen? My son was born and I walked out of hospital and I got a text message going, we got it. We've got the rights. Like this in the production company I was working with, we got the rights. We're, we're making the exclusive show. We're going to dig it up. And I thought, well, that's the rest of my life sorted. <laughs> I am going to climb down a ventilation shaft, yeah. discover in pitch black a massive 1940s steam engine <laughs> and it's going to be like gold in the back of it and it's going to be rolled up missing Van Goghs and stuff like you yeah. are kidding me I was like darling she's just had a baby and I'm like we're never going to be hungry again I'm like dancing down the street Wait, did you think you could keep the looted gold? No, I, I didn't want the looted gold. I want the fame and the fortune. Yeah. Oh, no, just the fame. I, right. you know, I, I don't care any of the looted stuff. I just have the sort of narcissistic desire to, you know, trend. So we then get out to Poland, and the first day we get there, first we interview the two guys who'd found it, and immediately I was like, this doesn't feel good. <laughs> And you've got a crew, presumably? I got a crew. Yeah. And I had a special haircut. I bought a cool <laughs> leather jacket. I was like, this, okay. That is funny. You're right. But it still hurts because I thought this was it. I thought this was going to be the launch pad. Wow. But then we go into the, the university, the local university in Wrocław. And uh, I interview the geologist. And he goes, these images are rubbish. It's all nonsense. Oh, no. And I was like... What? So there's no, there's no train down in that tunnel. He's like, there's no tunnel in that tunnel. There's definitely no train. He's like, I'm sorry, but I'm a remote sensing expert. and I don't know what's happened here. The government have just been hyping this. It's ridiculous. Anyway, good luck with the search. And we then spent three weeks trying to make a documentary with obviously nothing. Oh my to, God. Yeah, it's was the story real? The, was the train a real thing that disappeared? Well, yes, there were accounts of, I mean, it was, you know, this is 1945, the Red Army. Yeah. A snapping at the hills, the Wehrmacht, you're retreating. But late 44, I think. I mean, it is Armageddon. Yeah. It is like a kind of Gottendammerung of extraordinary levels of violence, war crimes, you know, appalling. And, and I should say, Wrocław at the time was in Germany proper. So that's right. They'd crossed into Germany. It's now a piece of Germany. It's in Poland. We could do another thing about our borders changing and countries changing shape. And no one's changed shape more than Poland in the last hundred years. But uh, so they were in Germany proper and it was just looting. And yeah, lots of things went missing. We did interview one 
German aristocratic family who buried treasure. Because the idea was that as the Soviets were advancing, everyone's just burying everything. It was hiding everything. Yeah. And then they just got all the domestic staff at this kind of schloss, this castle, and just shot them one by one until they told them where stuff was buried. So yeah, okay, right. Soviet so we know where most of yeah. it is. But there are also accounts of trains going back to the Soviet Union with just huge amounts of looted stuff from Germany. But no, nothing concrete. That's so interesting. Uh, and it was I, heartbreaking. I love missing treasure. I think that's something yeah. I like collecting stories about. And there's one that's a World War II one as well, which I wonder if you've heard about, which is, it's to do with Alan Turing. Do you know about Alan no, Turing? Okay, so Alan Turing helped crack the Enigma as part of Bletchley. Hero, he's on our notes. He's on the £50 note for anyone who is not in the UK. He got really scared that all of his valuables would be looted during the war. So he thought, I've got to do some way of protecting all the stuff that I have. So he traded stuff in uh, that was expensive for silver bars. So he got oh, these man. silver bars. He went out into the countryside and he buried it. And he made a map of it and he made a code of it and so on. War happens, finishes. He goes to look for it. And I think it's a combination of the landscape having changed. Someone said that he did such a good code, he couldn't uncrack his own oh, code. And he never found it. So somewhere, unless Don't it's been be dug silly. up, yeah, in the British countryside are the lost silver bars of Alan Turing. Oh which, my goodness, that's yeah, cool. I mean, that would be really cool. You know, if you go to a party and you say, what's the one coolest thing that you can probably think that you have in as part of your life? Mine is to do with secret treasure, which is I'm one of maybe five or six people in the world who know where a bit of lost treasure is that I'm not telling anyone. Do you remember the masquerade hair? Did you ever remember yeah, that well, book? Yeah, I know the name. Yeah. There was a book that came out, which was called Masquerade by Kit Williams. And in it, it was a kid's book. And in it, there were all these different clues as to where you would eventually find, if you cracked it, somewhere in the world buried this beautiful necklace of a golden hair that was made by Kit Williams and, and a designer. And so he went out, he buried it somewhere in the world, wrote this book, and it became the first ever global treasure hunt, basically. People spent years trying to crack it. People went mad. People were having to be rescued off the side of cliffs because <laughs> oh my the, God. the tide yeah. had come in and they I'm were stuck. i convinced it's thinking, right here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, it was eventually found. And it was a cheat for how it was found, but it was found. And it got sold off at an auction at Sotheby's, but no one knows who bought it. And a couple of years ago, I found out who bought it. And I know exactly where it is, but no one else does. Oh, wow. Kit Williams only himself just found out not too long ago, a couple of years ago, where it is. Knowing our treasure is, is very cool. Yeah. And I um, am obsessed with King John's treasure in the wash. Oh. People on this podcast have heard me talk about this before. So King John, as you know, hopeless kingy, we inherited an empire that covered uh, much of France, Britain and Ireland. When he died, his empire encompassed East Anglia. Okay. And so it was all going pretty badly. Rebels and the French had taken over most of his lands, the great French invasion of the mid-1210s. And he's travelling. He's got dysentery. He's travelling from Norfolk to Lincolnshire across the Wash, which in those days was far more wild and dramatic, great, huge tide. It's all been drained and embanked turned into agricultural land now. But this was quite a dramatic thing to do. And as they were crossing the Wash, the wagon containing the crown jewels got stuck. Ooh. And the tide came in, they had to abandon it. And they all made it to Lincolnshire, where he died shortly after. So the last thing that happened in his reign is he lost the crown jewels. He didn't just lost his kingdom, he lost the <laughs> crown jewels. It's like, come on, mate. Yeah. And they're all down there somewhere. Still. Uh, yeah, but the thought is because it's been reclaimed, it's probably now under agricultural land. Okay. But it could have been the tide. Could have, who knows where they could have moved it around. But yeah, yeah they made it the Plantagenet crown jewels of England are somewhere in northwest Norfolk. Wow. 
Yeah. That's your fame and fortune. That Find is it. That. No, that's the big one. That's the big one. Yeah, that's the retirement And we project. have no no one's been able to People work out even them. where a tide uh, would take it? No, I think it's pretty... We don't really know enough about what... Because it's very dyna- literally dynamic. So, you know, winter storms, the mudflats come and go and it's moving, it's shifting. Something that I think modern humans find it quite hard to understand is our coasts would have been liminal spaces. Some years they'd have been out and some years they'd have been in. You know, you'd, have, yeah. you'd attack and retreat. So it's pretty difficult finding that. But what would be your one thing then that if you could find just a, a historical item, it doesn't matter if it's oh, well, a, as a, a geek, lost item. Yeah, as a geek, yeah, uh, it would be missing manuscripts. In fact, there's a few where, of course, we've lost the majority of the classical worlds, mm-hmm. um, you know, text, plays, uh, histories and things like that. We know that Alexander the Great, the official account of his conquests by someone who was there, sort of the day-to-day accounts, we know that existed some years after. That's been lost. Right. We think Hadrian wrote like a very private memoir, the Emperor Hadrian, oh, like wow. a really for his successor. Yeah. And that's obviously been lost. Um, but my favourite is a guy called Pythias who was a sort of colonial Greek living in southern France, kind of in Marseille. And he leaves an account of sailing out into the Atlantic and going up, seeing the Northern Lights, seeing 24-hour sun, so going as far as the Arctic Circle, Britain, Ireland, etc., possibly icebergs. And we, we know about that through other people's writing. So other people incorporate, as Pythias says, but we've lost that original text. Right. So to have that description of a Greek mariner going into, oh, I would just love. Is it possible that it's out there? Oh or? yeah, for sure. Oh, so wow. you know about the so Herculaneum, we, yeah. you know about the scrolls and Herculaneum. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So the hope is that we will now be able to decipher these scrolls, these carbonized, they look like rocks, but they were scrolls that were covered in volcanic debris during Vesuvius eruption, during the famous eruption. And when in the 19th century, they're finding those and they thought they were bits of coal. They were putting them on the fire Mm. and they were actually carbonized scrolls from this extraordinary library, like this massive library on this super villa on the clifftop in Herculaneum. And they have now got away, as you know, of X-raying them and they've just been able to make out the first sentence from them. So it is entirely possible we're going to get the missing books, Tastus, we're going to get all, all sorts of stuff. That's very that is very exciting. That's very good. But yeah, it's not treasury in the traditional sense, but the, the no, Amber Room is good. The Amber Room. What's the Amber Room? The Amber Room is the one that was ripped out of Catherine the Great's palace near St. Petersburg by the Nazis. Oh, okay. And it was all Amber obviously have a room yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was transported and it's very well attested and then they people have lost track of it but you, now that I've said that listeners will endlessly hear people go oh might, this might be the amber room in this shipwreck it's thought it could potentially be on the Wilhelm Gustloff which is the worst maritime disaster in history it was a, a ship full of German refugees leaving eastern Europe basically and heading towards western Germany so it was the allied zone it was sunk by Soviets uh, in the last months of the war, 10,000 people died in right. one go. Extraordinary. So it's conceivable it was on there. Yeah. I remember reading, I don't know the details of this, but I remember reading, it's, I think, the coolest treasure map that must have ever been made, which was by Gordon Cooper, the astronaut. Do you remember that? No. Cooper's Gold, it's called. He was up in space just going around the world and he was convinced that he'd spot where a ship had sunk that most likely had a lost hoard of gold that no one had ever found. So he made a treasure map in space. He wrote the X marks the spot and he gave it to someone and someone's been over the last, you know, 10 years or whatever, looking for the astronaut's gold, basically. What? It's just so cool. He was just looking down at Earth and just saw this kind of patch and went, I think that could be it there. So made his map. (laughs) It's a rock. It's a rock. That's cool. That's very cool. It is very cool. I do think it would be cool to find, there's so many relics from history that have disappeared. I think I told you about this when we spoke last, but 
It's one of my favorite facts, which is the whoopee cushion was invented by an emperor called Basianus. And his real name is obviously Elagabalus. Um, and, and obviously that's not how you pronounce it's Basianus or whatever. But when, you, when you're bad at reading and you see the words, it's, it's Basianus. And he's credited with inventing the whoopee cushion. And where is that? That's a museum original, item. Yeah, yeah that's one I'd go for. And the other one that I obsess over is there used to be a relic. I, I obsess over relics uh, from uh, religion and they go on tours around the world, which is very exciting. And there used to be a relic, which was, and it's lost now. I think it got smashed up in the Reformation, but I feel like someone uh-huh. might have saved it. It's the putty from which God modeled Adam. Oh, that's used a, to be held. That's an important relic. You used to visit it. This was the putty that he made Adam out of. I just, oh, why would you lose that? You listen to Dan Snow's history. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Your discussion of Basianus makes me think we need to do a whole separate episode on the historical nominative determinism. Oh, yes. Because, I mean, that surely there's going to be, there's there's going going to be, be some important yeah. stuff there. There's relics that we don't know existed, but we can be certain they were amazing. So like Ramesses' funeral goods. Because right. we look at Tutankhamun, a very, very short pharaoh in a small tomb, and the goods there are some of the most important mm. in archaeological history. So you think to yourself, what did the goods of 
one of the really long serving, Aramisu Tuthmosis, Hatshepsut. Like, yes. What was going on with those? But we don't have an account of those. So it's, I guess it's intangible. It's so fun to, when you know something existed, but now has been lost. I mean, that's the tragedy, right? No, but that's, you're right, because the stuff we found in Tutankhamun's tomb is not just gold. It was random bits of oh, like. Yeah. Lots of lots of underpants. There were socks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which means he was a socks and sandals kind of guy, which <laughs> hey. is an incredible thing. Yeah. There were trumpets. There was. Well, there was the trumpet. They blew the trumpet. It fell apart. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah that's great. That We've lost that because of the But what did idiots. Ramses have then? Like, what, yeah. like just well, domestic stuff that we it would have been unbelievable. Yeah. And his tomb is like a multi story complex compared to Tutankhamun. So that's very sad. Um, speaking of mummies in Egypt, the Victorians and Edwardians obviously found those just so compelling, didn't they? Yeah. And I was once doing some filming in a museum and they said, they were doing some testing of mummy and they got very excited. They found traces of cocaine in this mummy. So they were like, my oh, yeah. goodness, is this pre-Columbian Egyptian? Is this kind of conspiracy theory about the Phoenicians, right? That they can sell in the Atlantic, around Africa? And it turns out, no, because the mummies were brought back and they would be the centerpiece of Edwardian dinner parties. And people would be like having seances around them and, you know, before you hand it over to the Ashmolean or the British Museum, whatever. And you'd have candles everywhere and you'd be eating. And they'd all these aristocrats would be doing cocaine. Right. And some of the cocaine found its so way it had into nothing the mummy. To do- no, oh, it had wow. nothing to do with it. I weirdly thought that, that yeah, they did Isn't cocaine. That yeah. That's the that's a very weird bit of history, the like the mummy unwrapping parties yes. and the smoking the ground up mummies Crazy. and like time travel wise, I think that would have to be a, a dinner destination for me. You'd be up just, for that. Well, just to see what was going on. Because sometimes history does come across as too mad. Yeah. You think, how is that a normal I don't think I've ever had a dinner party where something as eccentric has happened. You can say that again. And that was a norm. Not around me in the New Forest. <laughs> I mean, dinner parties are pretty, pretty conventional. Yeah, exactly right. And it's not like that was consistent with other kind of dinner parties there. That that was just, hey, come over. We've got a mummy. Yeah, We're going to unwrap it. Yeah. You would be thinking, what diseases are going to be unlocked here? Uh, is there a curse? Is yeah. there, you know, there's all these. Well, that does slightly bring me back to my kind of initial point about how actually the past, I think there was more opportunity for weirdness because... We were seeking it every day, all day. Whereas yeah. now people just go home in the evening, right? It's mm. sedentary. Whereas back then it's like, yeah, I'm going to organize a dinner party where we're going to run around unwrapping a mummy. That's going to be great. <laughs> yes. It's better that or watching the paint dry at home, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but curses are exciting, right? And the mummies, even today, the Tutankhamun's curse, lots of things people said in my childhood have sort of aged and disappeared. That's one that is alive and kicking. Like I, I made mm. a show about Tutankhamun and people will stop you and be like, well, I hope you don't get the curve. I hope yeah. the curve doesn't get you. And you're like, there isn't a, it doesn't even stand up. You can analyze the lifespans of all the people that went into that tomb in the initial investigation party, and they all lived longer than usual. Like it, <laughs> yes, yeah. It's not a thing. I mean, famously, Lord Carnarvon died of an infected mosquito bite very shortly afterwards. But like that, it was that. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. Curses are fascinating because it's all psychological. And I think they do work if you believe yeah. that they're going to work. That's the dangerous thing of the mind. And... And there's there's a story, I was talking about this weirdly, I had Ross Noble on my show because he did a thing where he used to sell cursed mummy sand at his gigs off the back of doing The Apprentice Australia. He was given sand and they said, sell sand. And he tried to think, how do I do this? So he created envelopes where he said, this is the cursed mummy sand. Everyone who is associated with the Tutankhamun excavation are now dead. Um, you know, <laughs> Just stuff like that. And he sold it and he made tons of money. And after the show went out, 
out, everyone said, where can I get some of this uh, mummy cursed sand? And so at his gigs, he would sell not even the sand, just envelopes with hieroglyphics on it saying, put your own sand in and it will be the cursed sand. <laughs> Donated all the money to charity. But people's fascination with it, I was saying to him, I would buy that envelope because there's something alluring about an object in a house that might in some way have magical somethingness about it. And um, I was telling them the story, which is a lot of people will go to places like Uluru in Australia, formerly Ayers Rock, and they'll take a rock secretly, they'll put it in their coat and they'll go home. And then if it just so happens, they go through a patch in their life where things are going bad, they'll go, it's the rock. And so they send the rock back to Uluru to kind of fix this problem, this curse that's sitting over their house. The really fun thing about that is it's a nightmare for Uluru. They've had to set up a rock reclamation kind of office where they bring in all the rocks and they don't want them back. There's quarantine. They've got to quarantine every single rock that comes in because it's going to have bacterias and stuff that you don't want to spread into the Australian outback. The giant packages that come. What are we going to do with this giant rock? They're often sent rocks that never came from Uluru. Oh, I was going to say, so surely yeah. they're sent, yeah. So like, you've just sent us a rock from, I don't know, someone's backyard who sold it to you as an Uluru rock. And now we've got this thing here. What do we do with it? All the locals who I think everyone thinks they would be upset that these things are going are like, no, no, we don't. If it's gone, just keep it. What's going on? So I love the admin of curses. I think that's great where <laughs> it's just so horrible on their life that they keep getting, I'm sorry, I stole this rock and it's caused seven deaths in my family. You need it back now. And they're like, mate, this is my whole day now, quarantining this thing, doing certificates, the paperwork. Yeah, that's but the, for me the That's the power thing. of superstition. And obviously there are so many examples from history, but and clearly the present of people who believe those things so passionately that they start to ascribe everything happening in their lives to them. And indeed, if they feel they are cursed, there are accounts that I have come across in, I think it was Captain Cook's first voyage, where someone believes themselves to be unlucky and actually ends their own life. Like, I, I, this is... Wow, really? Yeah, this is just that sort of sense of unlucky. Napoleon said, I want my generals lucky. I believe... Do you believe in luck? I, I like... Yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, I, but Napoleon said, I don't care my generals can do this, that and the other, but are they lucky? Yeah. And there's an urban myth, which I'd love someone to email in and tell me is true, is the French do have still have a box tick for their officer's promotion system. Like, is this person lucky? Really? Yeah, but it's it's annoyingly, I, I, can't, oh, I don't know if wow. it's true. But actually, that rings true to me. However, that's not consistent throughout life. Like, I had a very lucky 15 years. Like, even when I really screwed up, something weird would happen to unscrew it which made me very lazy because then mm. I didn't have to worry about things and then that caught up with me a bit later on right, okay. I went through a run of things not just miraculously working out did you happen to bring home a rock from yeah, some yes. sacred site my god that's right I did <laughs> as you probably fixed it in one yeah. Um, yeah it is interesting I think it was you that made the point that you think that people who believed that they were lucky kind of became the big people of our planet. Yeah. They design their own destiny by believing that luck happened. If you look at all the leaders, I'm pretty sure it was you that told me this. You're like, look at all the leaders. They all said, yeah, I'm destined for greatness yeah. and, and luck is what's going to happen. self-belief. Yeah. yeah, which is... And I guess if you don't believe you're lucky, you're not going to stand for election that first time. You're yeah. not going to throw your hat in the ring, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, it's fascinating. And weirdly, the, um, the mummy curse stuff, 
one of my favorite journalists from the UK, W.T. Stade. He ran very odd things. Again, you know, London's such an amazing, his every street, there's just something incredible. On the Strand, he ran an agency that was called Julia's Bureau with a lady called Julia, where you could come in and try and contact someone on the other side. And he had agents all around the UK who would be mediums on your behalf. So if they thought that you had a good reason to contact someone, they would take on your case. Julia would approve of it and uh, they would look into it and get the message back to you. And it turned out that Julia, who set up the company, had actually no idea the company existed because she had died like a decade before. And it was during a weird automatic writing seance session that Julia got in contact with WT State, said, set up this bureau for me. So she was the head of a company, but was dead and had no idea it would ever be set up on her behalf. So he was an odd character who was also an amazing journalist in the UK. And it was him who wrote a book where, this is- along with a few other people, he had the prediction of a boat in the mid-Atlantic sinking, there not being enough lifeboats wrote it, uh, I don't know, a few years before the Titanic disaster. And then it turned out um, that he never got to sort of claim that he was incredible as someone with premonition powers because he died on the Titanic. He was one of the casualties. He was on the ship. But there's a story that before he died, the night before, he was regaling everyone around the table about the cursed mummies. There's a whole story about him at the British Museum looking at a mummy with a friend of his and creating an idea of cursed mummies and so on. And when everyone, the survivors, got back from the Titanic and they were talking about W.T. Stade because he was a very famous guy, they said, yes, on the night before, he was telling us about a cursed mummy. And it's thought that the whole Tutankhamun cursed mummy thing is off him saying it on that night on the Titanic, on the penultimate night, because a lot of people thought there's a cursed mummy on the Titanic yes, as well. Yes, that was the myth. Yeah. Yeah, that was a- but he's one guy who is so in the fabric of weirdness for the things we still talk about today. Well, and seances and speaking from beyond the grave is so fascinating. And I always love the fact that the last woman convicted of 18th century witchcraft under 18th century witchcraft legislation was actually a woman in the UK during the Second World War in the 1940s because she told family members about the loss of a battleship called the Barham in the Mediterranean. And she'd heard it loose talk around the dock or whatever. But she started to say, well, I know that your relatives on Barham and they've been killed and this was when it was embargoed. Then the police nabbed her and like, we actually, we're not sure we can prosecute her. And they dug up this mid 18th century witchcraft legislation. Wow. She was banged to rights. She went to prison. Yeah, so it's the last witch in the UK. So they were worried that she was going to be slipping out secrets. Well, yeah, they were worried that she'd keep telling people the word on the Barham would get out and, you know, who knew what she knew. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Is this true? Have you ever come across this? Because I've I've only in passing sort and never looked into it. But during the Second World War, there was a huge thing of um, the idea of using magic and occultism as part of war tactics. There's a story that there's an amazing bookshop called Watkins, which is an occult bookshop. And it was run by a guy called John Watkins. And I think it was his son who apparently Churchill brought in to be the official person for astrology, even though he didn't believe it. But he wanted to understand what they might be thinking if they were using astrology, give insight into the into the army. And there's a lady who, again, lives in London, who supposedly was doing psychic warfare on the soldiers over in Germany, I think it was. And there's a story that when the bombing of London happened, a very specific site was picked to be bombed because it's where she lived and they wanted to take out the psychic warfare that was going on. And I don't know if that's 100% true. So if your listeners can write in and let me know. It's interesting that that London Blitz bombing, it feels like that's, uh, does it? 
the level of precision would be probably a little... No, I mean, they did go for buildings and avoid buildings. Famously, Kaiser Wilhelm ordered no royal palaces were to be bombed mm. in the First World War. It made him want, he was angry at his relatives, but he didn't want to kill them. Right, OK. beneath the dignity of a, an imperial family member to yeah. be killed by an aerial bomb. And wasn't Oxford and places like well, that left? Ed- because Edinburgh, wouldn't yeah. it be great famously, to have that? Famously, Blackpool was left because it was going to be the German sort of R&R, the leisure of the German occupying garrison. Only one bomb dropped by mistake. Only one raid happened on Blackpool. One Isn't plane. it terrifying, that thought, that such level of power that, like, I've just moved into a new home and you do look at each room and go, what should we do that? Let's take down the paints, uh, you know, change the colours here. Let's do the floors. They're literally looking at the UK there going, oh, that will be a great leisure centre. Let's keep that. Let's." That's mad, the power in that. Well, that's why they do go mad. I mean, I yeah. think that's just ultimate power. yeah. I think as well they rounded up. Um, there was definitely one of the guys, the high commanders of the Nazis, who believed in psychic ability and psychic warfare, and they rounded up a lot of the local psychics and they kept them in one camp because they needed to. They wanted them to concentrate on where they could find various <laughs> people that were hiding from them. But this stuff was a real thing. I mean, it's bizarre. Well, Alistair Crowley was brought in by Ian Fleming in order to be a part of spreading occult stuff to the Germans because they thought they would believe that this person had magic powers. It's, yeah. Well, they don't call it total war for nothing, do they? And it is fascinating. Like every single aspect of the kind of human story, every piece of our character, that's what's so interesting about the Second World War. None of it is left unturned. Like they harness every single conceivable thing in in that quest for victory. It's so fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting. I've never been properly into war as such. If I could pick a museum to go to in in London, I would never go to the Imperial War Museum. I'd go to the Natural History Museum, Science Museum. I went for the first time the other day to the Imperial War Museum. It's the greatest museum I've ever been to in my life. Listen, bud. The in- it's called Middle Age. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that what it it's is? It's called Dad. Oh, no. Hey, you've, you just had your youngest kid. You yeah. Are now- it's just the level of invention. It's incredible. Yeah. As you say, every single thing is thought of. And, you know, they've got that tree there that was used in No Man's Land where they sketch a tree, they take it down, they put in a fake tree, and then they've got people in there being able to well, relay you messages. Would, you would have been... Churchill would have snapped you up in a second because you are, he liked people that think in wiggly lines. He didn't want people who think in straight lines. And you are one of those people. Your brain is so <laughs> fascinating. You would be constantly coming up with amazing innovations and different ideas and ways of doing things. Something else I want to ask you about, because I heard it in, in a recent podcast of yours, and it reminded me of Tintin, where Professor Calculus is always doing these, and that's bull lightning. You read oh, these yeah. accounts, like what's going on there? It's really weird. I'd never heard of this before. So um, I had a guest on my show called Ella Al-Shamahi. She's a anthropologist, really cool, really badass, goes into Yemen and places like that. She's with been on the, the pod. Has she? Right. Yeah. Very cool. And um, I was asking her, you know, because she's a very, very rational kind of person. So I was trying to find that little bit of weirdness in her. And she said, when I was a kid, my mom told me this story that she was in the house and suddenly through the window, this ball of lightning just came in, went all over the house, and then shot back out again. There's two stories that her family tells, and I'm not sure she's uh, settled on which one was right. The first time she told me, she said, it came in through one door, her auntie saw it coming, opened up the other door, and it went back out the house again. But it's a real thing. It's a real phenomenon, this idea of ball lightning. And there's a few scientists and historians who are studying accounts from history where it's been reported. No one really knows what it is. There's a bunch of theories. but You get it in naval logs, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, that's where I've come across it. And like a monk recorded it on the Thames. I mean, again, so cool. William Hazlitt's there. You've got ball lightning recorded by monks down the road. Um, it's something to do with energy that we honestly don't know, which is it's just a phenomenon which 
And people have accounts where they have no reason just to make stuff up. They just say, I was in my house. This ball came down. It stopped in front of my face as if it was like looking at me. And then it just bounced around and went away. And they had singed hair and everything. It's like, there's no reason for them to make it up because have they even heard of ball lightning? That's not how you get in the papers. So scientists have been looking into it. It's not a pressing matter, bizarrely, <laughs> because it's well, it's quite rare. I think we should get to some kind of answer. Right? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. That's what I kept asking them. I was like, so are you you're making this a priority? And they're yeah. like, nah, it's just a you know well, interesting thing to look at. Crack on. Yeah. I can see why there's so little time for them to focus their attention on things like ghosts and stuff like that, because there's so many natural phenomena that remains a mystery to the world of science, like ball lightning, that you go, well, get in the queue, ghosts. Like, we have actual... Yeah, we got much more interest. Rather than just made up Jane Austen type people walking around. Yeah, exactly. Things like ball lightning. There's ball lightning. So you're telling me there is no scientific explanation for ball lightning? I think there's a few theories, but none of them stack up entirely because it's such a rare phenomena that we don't know. It's kind of like one thing I wanted to point out about how mysterious everything is on our planet. It goes from things as big as do ghosts exist or is there an afterlife, is there God, you know, all that stuff, all the way down to the fact that scientists can't agree why when you're in the shower, the shower curtain billows in towards you. They just (laughs) don't have a solid answer for it. There are four competing theories at the moment which say, oh, it's because of this effect, it's this effect, but it doesn't answer all the things that are needed to make sure that's a thing. So next time you're in the shower, if there's a shower curtain coming in towards you, we have no idea why. We got basic idea, but there's no agreed reason for it. That's so, very worrying. Yeah, but it goes all the way from as big as God to shower curtains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Speaking of ball lightning, I was once asked to present a TV show when I was in my early twenties, and it was basis of natural phenomena, mm. and the tagline was "filming the impossible," and I was like. There's a problem here, though, <laughs> yeah. right, guys, yeah. which is this episode, ball lightning. What do I do to kind of hang around yeah. in like lightning-y places? That's what's so exciting about this stuff. It's actually still very difficult to capture on camera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's why it re- remains a mystery. But as you know, because it's your entire career, it's, it's storytelling, isn't it? It's the people who've experienced these things. And hearing those stories gives you a context of a lot of life in very weird ways. So... It's like a Bill Bryson book, right? You don't really care about the science, but you want to find out about that person who's trying to prove that they think that this effect is happening or whatever. But yeah, on screen, it's really dull (laughs) to not see ball lightning. As someone who's made lots of programs about things that turn out not to be there at the end of the day. How did you fix the the Nazi gold? We went and filmed in lots of underground. There are lots of very interesting underground installations built in that part of Germany, or that was part of Germany, because it's as far as you can get from Allied bombers based in the UK. Yeah. So they built a lot of underground factories there. And so there were some superb tunnels and exciting things, but they were like open to the public. Okay, <laughs> we we right. just made them look really cool. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Nice. Like, an hour after we left, they just turned all the lights on and let the public back in. But, did you um, did you admit within the documentary oh, yeah. that this thing? Oh, oh well, no, that's no, great. At the, end of the documentary, that's I was really like, fun. weeping, going, "There's nothing here," <laughs> but it doesn't mean that it's still not out there. Yeah, somewhere, yeah, yeah. Right? So it's fun. But the interesting thing, of course, about remote sensing, whether from space or metal detectors, or of course, subsea has gone crazy, is we're going to find a lot more stuff over the next few years, right? Mm. So sometimes we might think of the golden age of archaeology being like a while ago with Knossos and Tutankhamun, Troy. I don't know. Like We are going to be able to get into and open up and have a look at every shipwreck in the ocean, which contains more artifacts than every museum on the planet. The yeah, moment. that's so, pretty amazing. So I think our life, the next... 30, 40 years are going to be extraordinary. Thank you for coming on this podcast and sharing all of your uh, weird history. Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.